Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Daniel Joseph. Thank you for joining our live stream Shabbat service today. Uh, we're going to be hitting a milestone today, as it were. Uh, we'll be breaking into the final chapter of this epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 13. And right off the bat, we are hit with an awesome principle, a principle that we cannot compromise, a principle that we can't ignore. A principle that if we do not apply it to our life, we'll never make it into the kingdom of God. It's pretty important, uh, shall we say. With that said, let's get started. Here's the principle. There's a beautiful simplicity to it. Let brotherly love continue. The first thing I want to say here is that getting back to the 16th century and Stephanus and bless his heart for doing this for us, he kind of organized the scriptures into chapters and verses, and it allows us uh, to be able to, you know, reference passages easy, especially for memory-challenged people like myself. And so it's a, it's a wonderful thing. However, there are times, and I've mentioned this before, but there are times that the separation of chapter 12, in this case, from 13, most people look at this as there's a total change in direction or there's a new thought. This is something like a new paragraph. And it's natural to do that. However, you would be missing the pretty amazing point that the writer is getting across here. Uh, if you separate the last couple of verses in chapter 28 or uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 28 and 29, and going into verse 1 here. And what do I mean by that? Here's the situation. As you go back to verse 28, uh, the writer's talking about that we need to serve God acceptably. We need to have this reverence. We need to have this godly fear for him. In other words, we need to love him. And why? Because he's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He is passionately jealous about us. He's jealous for a time. Uh, he's jealous for our affection. He's jealous for our attention. He is absolutely in love with us. And he's not willing to share us. And so here you have this, this beautiful description of the Lord, uh, who is not a raging inferno of hatred and wrath, as it were, but he's a consuming fire because of his jealousy, his love. And so... That's an awesome thought, but it has to coincide with what the writer says right here when he says, let brotherly love continue. Because what you need to see that the writer just did is this. He just did what Yeshua did in Matthew 22. When Yeshua actually said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's quite literally what the writer is doing here uh, at the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13. And so because of this, I, I want to spend our time today by going to the 10th chapter of Luke and really building upon what the writer is conveying here. And we're actually going to begin at verse 25, chapter 10. Here we go. And behold, a certain lawyer. Now, 
the lawyer is an expert in the Torah. This guy is supposed to know the Torah. And as we look in our story, as we continue, you're going to find out he knows the Torah very well. He's at the, the top of the food chain, as they say, in regard to scholars. And so a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Another way you could translate in the, in the Greek is, is he tempted him. And so, you know, many look at this passage in a negative connotation in the sense that this lawyer has not so good motives involved here. He may be dealing with pride. He may be dealing with envy. But this is what prompted him, knowing that what he knows as a scholar, he's moving to step up and to test Yeshua. But here's what I find fascinating. It's the first word that comes out of his mouth, and that is teacher. This was one of the most honored terms that any man could bear uh, going back to the first century, to be called teacher. But when you put it in this context where you have this expert in the Torah, and he comes out and he's calling Yeshua teacher, that is an awesome thing. You know, when we, we think about Yeshua's ministry, I mean, obviously, and rightfully so, we're, we're, we get obsessed with his power and his grace of going out and healing people and forgiving sins, and, and that's awesome. The other thing that Yeshua did that made the crowd marvel was teach. His preaching and teaching they hung on every word. They stood in awe. He put the leaders to shame. No one could come up against his wisdom. And I love what Matthew 7 talks about. It says that, that he astonished the people and that he didn't teach as the scribes and Pharisees taught, but he taught as one having authority. And then when you go to John 7, what we learn there is that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they send officers out to go get Yeshua and say, bring him back. We're done with him. We've had enough. But the officers come back empty handed. They said, why have you not brought him? And they said, no man has ever spoke like this man. And so the aspect of Yeshua this aspect that left people dumbfounded and in awe of his wisdom, this is what gained him this title of notoriety that Torah teachers, Torah experts would go out and identify him as teacher. That It's profound. This Torah expert, he comes and says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, remember that, and for those of you who have been with me for a while, you know this is the million dollar question, as I say. There's no more important question than this. This is the question of all questions. This is the one that needs to be asked. And so I look at this guy and he's asking the right questions. Okay, so what do we have to do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua said to him, what is written in the Torah? What is your reading of it? In other words, you're a Torah scholar. How do you interpret it? And what's fascinating is upon being asked how to inherit eternal life, Yeshua turns them to the law. 
something that is absolutely unthinkable in modern day Christianity in general where in general they Christ did away with the law the law is a curse there's there's negative connotation built into this concept when when you say law I mean it makes Christians cringe at times because that's the old way of doing things and yet when this guy asks Yeshua straightforward how do I get into heaven Yeshua's response is go back to the law how do you read it and that tells us that the answer to inheriting the kingdom of God is in the Torah and that makes it incredibly valuable to me now continuing on verse 27 so that this lawyer answered and said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and I love this part because this this is where this Torah scholar condenses the entirety the purpose the meaning the instructions of the Torah in a matter of seconds he goes back to Deuteronomy 6 5 you should love the Lord your God and then he goes to Leviticus 19:18, and in his mind it's these two commandments that sum it all up well again this is exactly what Yeshua taught in Matthew 22 the answers to eternal life are within the Torah now you think about this and what do we understand here we understand that the Torah is a book of love if if the two greatest commandments that come out of Torah are loving God and loving your neighbor what is Torah about it's all about love it's a book of love it promotes love for me when I'm talking to other Christian pastors uh, when talking to just other Christians that are of the mindset that they hold the theology that there is no law that Christ did away with it I always respond by but it's a it's it's all about love and I try to replace that lens that they've been given this polluted lens that the de that the enemy the devil has handed them so that they look through this polluted lens when they go to scripture and they can only read and digest concepts that where they interpret them as Christ doing away with the law that we don't have to keep the law I mean it's 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 really a fascinating thing to the point where you know before they shut all the churches down here recently I mean we had some pretty prolific pastors boldly coming out and saying we don't even need to keep the Ten Commandments anymore Christ did away with that and we're doing Christ a huge disservice by not doing that we're called to love and it's so interesting to me because that's what Torah is Torah defines love and that's what's so important is I see in this modern-day Christianity this postmodern Christianity we've redefined love and we got to get back to the Torah and see how God defines love because that's what it is and when we look at it through this lens when I'm looking and reading the Torah through the lens of love and nay I say the lens of Yeshua for he is love you completely read it differently in a completely different way it, it's not going back and 
seeking to be put into bondage and shackles. It's not being set up for failure, as you know, some even scholars have uh, attempted to purport that anyone trying to go back to the law is only setting themselves up for failure. It's none of that. It's an amazing treasure trove of riches, of wisdom, of understanding, of getting to know the beauty of the mind of God. Here we see the Torah is a book of love. I want to take you to Romans 13. I just want to interject what Paul has to say because I, I like how he articulates this. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And, and again, if I can beat a dead horse here, Christians say that the law has been done away with, then we have nothing of which to fulfill. But here Paul clearly indicates to the Gentiles in Rome that we're obligated to fulfill the law and if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're loving one another, we will fulfill the Torah, what the Torah is requiring. Again, so here you have Paul, in addition to this other expert that existed in the first century who's dialoguing with Yeshua, they both have the same understanding that Torah is a book of love, period. Now, moving on to verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, uh, seventh commandment, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment, you shall not steal. Eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Ninth commandment, and you shall not covet the last commandment. I mean, he's in the Ten Commandments here, just flying through them. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul quotes the exact verse that this legal expert, this lawyer, quotes to Yeshua of understanding what is the true goal, if I was to bring it to the finest point, what is Torah asking of me? Love. It's just simply asking you, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what it's asking. There's nothing greater than that in regard to making the Lord happy. And then he ends on this, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Twice he says, this is how you fulfill the law. It's by love. And hence, it is love. So, as we look at this in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, and this lawyer responds that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, the guy is right on the money. He certainly is showing himself, regardless of the motivation, just kind of slide that aside for a second. How he answers is absolutely biblically perfect. And we know it's perfect because this was Yeshua's answer. Now, continuing on, verse 28, And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Notice Yeshua doesn't say, Oh, hear this and live or intellectualize this and you'll live. He said, no, do this and you will live. And so now we start talking about Romans 2.13, where Paul says, not the hearers of the law will be justified in the sight of God. Only the doers of the law will be justified. And we know those are the ones who love the Lord their God and their neighbor as themselves. They walk in the commandments, the commandments of love that promote love. 
And so an amazing, amazing lesson for us today. Verse 29, But he wanting to justify himself said to Yeshua, And who is my neighbor? This is, for me, this is a fascinating part of the story. Now, again, uh, people will suggest here, scholars, pastors on down, clearly there's something off with this guy's motive. Why would Luke specifically take the time to say he wanting to justify himself? Obviously alluding to something's going on here. But be that as it may, let's talk about this for a second. Could there have been a debate of some kind in the first century that maybe even this guy engaged in regard to who his neighbor was? Maybe. I mean, it's plausible. I mean, if you've ever read the Talmud, everything's up for uh, debate, okay? You know, the, the infamous uh, Ask Three Rabbis get four different answers. But anyways, what I want you to think about here is I want you to ask yourself, is he asking because he doesn't know? And what I would submit to you is that, oh no, he knows very well. He's already proven himself very learned. He's right on the money. He answered the question perfectly to Yeshua. But then he takes it a step further. Who is my neighbor? Well, I want to dig into this a little bit. I want to take you back to the Torah, right from where this legal expert is drawing from. And I want to show you what it says. In doing so, you're going to be, at least I think, you're going to be convinced that this guy knew exactly who his neighbor was according to the Torah. And this is the beauty of the story because Yeshua is going to pull a theological rug out from under him in a, such a profound way that it, just, it makes the whole story. It just, it's gripping. It's phenomenal. And so let's go back to the Torah and let's look at Leviticus 19. We'll actually start in 17. And we're going to learn something very important about this term neighbor. Because notice, before we go there, obviously notice he doesn't ask, and who is God? That wasn't even a debate. He didn't even go there. He knew God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of his fathers. The God who created heaven and earth. The God who parted the Red Sea. Yeah, this is, there is no debate. He's, but he is asking about, well, who exactly is my neighbor? The whole thing is a setup. It's incredible. So going back to Leviticus 19, 17, we read this. You shall not hate your brother. Your brother, in Hebrew, ach. You're not, you're not to hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Oh, look at that. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. No, notice this time it didn't say you shall surely rebuke your brother. It uses a different term, rea, in the Hebrew. It's your neighbor. And not bear sin because of him. Now, why do I point this out? Because this is important. The term brother, ach, is used transposably or synonymously with the term rea, neighbor. They are one in the same. Now, this is incredible. So as this guy's asking, and who is my neighbor? We know exactly from the passage he drew, well, it's, it's your brother. Ah, but there's more. So we continue. Verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. B'nai Amecha. The children, you, another way you could say this? B'nai Israel, Children of Israel. 
You're not to bear a grudge against the children of Israel, but you shall love your, oh, here we are, Rhea again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so here we are. We're looking at this very passage that this legal expert drew from. He clearly knows his Torah. He is familiar with what we just read. And we just learned that brother is synonymous with neighbor, that B'nai Amecha or B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, is synonymous with brother. It's synonymous with neighbor. All of these terms are one in the same. This is going to prove to be quite significant for the punchline of our story. Now, going back, he asks, and who is my neighbor? Yeshua answers. Then Yeshua answered and said, A certain man went down from Yerushalayim to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the first thing you need to understand, he's gone from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's a Jew. This is fundamental to this story that you understand this. This is a Jew. He's been badly hurt. They roughed him up bad. He's literally left half dead. Okay, so now moving on to verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In other words, the priest saw him and he intentionally moved to the other side. He didn't want to get caught up with him. He didn't want to help him. He didn't want to take the time for whatever reason. He might have been late for somewhere. He might have not been in the mood. Whatever the case may be. Here you have the most highly decorated man in Israel, a Kohen. And get this, it's crazier because this is the one who is dedicated, literally, the purpose of him is to keep the children of Israel into relationship in a good standing with the Lord God. This is why they serve at the altar. This is why the Kohen goes in uh, on the day of Yom Kippur to the Holy of Holies to bring in the blood. To keep that relationship intact, the symbol of the altar is in itself relationship. And he serves at that, which obviously, you know, the, the altar is so symbolic of Yeshua because he is the one that keeps us in relationship with the Father. Without him, there's no relationship. Anyway, the priest, this is his sole function, is to connect God with the people and to keep that going. That's why God set him to do this. And he goes by on the other side. He doesn't help his own brethren. The people he's going in on Yom Kippur for. It gets worse. Moving on to verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And so here you have the Levite. They also served in the temple. They served the priest. They, they were given as assistants. The Levites are the ones that filled the temple with praise. They were worshipers. Not just that, but both the priest and the Levite. Now get this. They were preachers. They were teachers. The, Malachi tells us that, that the people are to seek the law from their mouth. And so here you have the preachers and teachers, the ones who, who do intercession who are training the people, and they both walk intentionally on the other side so as not to help these this Jewish man. But then it gets interesting, verse 33. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice he doesn't go to the other side. His heart. When, when you see this term compassion, it's, that's deep within your heart. You're moved. This Samaritan was moved in his heart. And he hurt for this man in his heart. It produced action. It motivated him to go help this Samaritan. Now, unless you understand this in its true historical context, you're going to miss the entire boat here. And what I mean by that is the Jews and Samaritans were arch enemies. They hated one another. I mean, just look in history. You can read the writings of Josephus. You can read the Talmud. It does not speak favorably of Samaritans. Uh, you can read the Apocrypha. It does not speak favorably of Samaritans, calling them the foolish ones. You can read the New Testament. It does not speak favorably about it. This is, it was James and John. Go back a chapter to Luke chapter 9. This is the only time James and John were wanting to call down fire to destroy people for not receiving Yeshua. You, you won't find it recorded anywhere else. There's only one time. And guess what? It was with Samaritans. It was the Samaritans who completely rejected the prophets. In other words, they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They rejected all the prophets and all the books that came after. They would have nothing to do with it, which comes to the next problem associated to that problem. And that is they wouldn't recognize Yerushalayim. They didn't recognize the altar in Yerushalayim. They didn't recognize the temple in Yerushalayim. Now, you saw how that worked for Jeroboam. That did not work so good when he set up his two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and told the people, it's too far for you. It's too hard for you to go up to the temple. You don't need to do that. You can just go to either Dan or go to Bethel. And this is, this is where the Samaritans were. And so... To a Jew, the Samaritans are anathema, and to Samaritans, they were offended by the Jews. So these were, you know, two groups that did not get along whatsoever. And then, of course, you have John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, Yeshua has this talk with the Samaritan woman, and she's baffled that he would speak to her. And the text says, because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans pure and simple. And so these are enemies of one another. And here, this Samaritan comes in and he is the only one that is going to help this Jew that is left for dead. This is incredible when you, when you think about it. Can you imagine the mind? What was going through the mind of this lawyer when Yeshua got to this part? That a Samaritan, because all this... You know, your first century Jews were offended by these Samaritans. They're the oscourging. And what was going through his mind at that time? Well, it gets even better. Verse 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And obviously, historically, they carried medicinal purposes. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This is awesome because he put the interest of this Jew left for dead, his enemy, 
before his own. He got off his own animal. He isn't going to ride it anymore. He's going to show kindness and put this man on his animal and then take him to an inn so that he can care for him. I mean, he is going way out of his way here, which is amazing because it's like I can hear the Apostle Paul uh, screaming at me, you know, you know, like from Philippians and from Corinthians, put the interest of others before your own. You always want to think about others first and you second. And there's a tenderness to that. There's a kindness. There's gentility. There's fruit. There's power. There's all this stuff that comes from it. The Apostle Paul says in Titus 3.14, he says, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Meet urgent needs. Now think about, this is exactly what this Samaritan is doing. He is meeting the urgent need of this Jew who was left for dead. He's doing exactly what the Apostle Paul was teaching Gentiles to do in the name of Yeshua. All right, continuing on. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. And it's estimated that would be a couple days worth uh, to make sure to care for him. He gave them to an innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So get this. This Samaritan literally gave of every possession that he had. He gave of his oil and wine. He put him on his own ammo and he himself got down. And then he himself took time to care for him and he gave of his money. Everything that he had at his disposal, every resource that he had, he utilized to put into loving this arch enemy, loving this Jew who was badly hurt. Moving on. Verse 36, so Yeshua asked, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now, I, I got to tell you, I, I look at this and, and right here, the lawyer is challenged with something that I am positive he never thought of before. I mean, he's being challenged here to think outside the box, to think in a manner of what the Torah really teaches. What What is right in the sight of God. What, what is God's heart in this manner? And he's having to wrestle with these things. And it's just like you can see the smoke from the wheels turning. So he responds and he says, he, not them, plural. He, as in the Samaritan, be very specific, he who showed mercy on him. Again, try to kind of paint the picture of the crowd standing there, them listening to this dialogue, them hearing Yeshua teach like no man ever before, answering this question, who is my neighbor? And at the end of this, this Jewish legal expert in the Torah comes back and says, a Samaritan. A Samaritan, keep in mind, was his ach, his brother. A Samaritan was his rea, his neighbor. A Samaritan was B'nai Israel, a child of Israel, a son of Israel. That's a struggle for a first century Jew to be confronted with that kind of reality. And it's just talk about 
peeling off all these traditions and preconceived notions, ripping them off of what has been added to the Torah or what we, what we have in our mind and leaving nothing but the pure word of God and his truth and what God's heart is. That is an awesome thing. It gets crazier. The fact that he said this, because again, the question is, is who is the neighbor? Of the three, who, who is the neighbor to him? He answered the Samaritan, which means this Cohen, this priest, was not his ach, was not his brother, was not a Rea, was not a neighbor, was not B'nai Israel. He wasn't a son of Israel. I mean, you want to talk about a knockout punch, a theological knockout punch. This is it. This Levite was not a B'nai Israel. He was not a neighbor. And to be confronted with that is terrifying, especially for a Jew in the first century. I mean, you think about the dialogue Yeshua had with the, with the Jews in John chapter 8. And they said, we have one, we have Abraham as our father. And, and Yeshua's response is, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then he goes on later in, in John chapter 8 and says, you are of your father, the devil. I mean, they were Jews. They were Jews, and clearly they valued their identity as a Jew. They valued their heritage going all the way back to Abraham. And yet Yeshua calls these Jews sons of the devil. I mean, that's debilitating. That's flipping people's worlds upside down. That is what's happening here. You know, I think of Yeshua's words in, in, in Revelation to the two churches, Ephesus, the one church in Ephesus and, and the one church in Philadelphia. I know those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. They're imposters. And actually, Yeshua uses the term blasphemy. I know the blasphemy that is committed by these men because they, they're, they're imposters. They say they're Jews. They say they walk like Abraham, but they do not. And, and I, I think of Psalm 73, uh, verse 1, God is good to Israel. It doesn't end there. To such, it categorizes it, to such as are pure in heart. And so we could go on and on. Not all who are Israel are of Israel. The point being is, is this lawyer, this Jewish lawyer, is having his world rocked right now with what he was confronted with. Because you're peeling off all the garbage, all the dross, all the man-made thoughts, and leaving nothing but the beautiful heart of the living God. It is so awesome. Yeshua blows my mind, as he should. I mean, his teachings, we need to hang on every single word. There's no one like him. Amen? And then Yeshua follows up. Yeshua said to him, go and do likewise. Notice he didn't say, you know, go and intellectualize what you've just heard. Go and do it. Be, again, be a doer of the word, not a hearer. This is what you're called to. And frankly, it's life and death. Yes, this is salvational. Love is a salvational topic. Absolutely. From beginning to end, it is totally salvational. And when you recognize that, that can rock your own world. If you realize you don't have the love that you should have in your heart. I want to take you to 1 John. We're going to go to chapter 4, verse 10. 
John says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so quite literally, what is John describing here? He's describing Yeshua as the love of God. Yeshua is love. And if I'm to say to you that the Torah is a book of love, it promotes love, the law is love, and the Torah became flesh, the word became flesh, it would make sense. Yeshua would have to be the very definition of love. And he is. And so he goes on and he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is so profound. It will radically change your behavior if you let this reality sink in. Your struggles will dissipate where you've been struggling about loving somebody or about forgiving somebody. You take heed to what was just said and you put it into application. And I'm telling you, you will be able to do things you couldn't imagine. You will be able to overcome. Again, I'm going to read this. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, if we first recognize Yeshua, how did God love his son? If we recognize Yeshua, that sacrifice that he made, Though he were innocent, he died for our sins. His resurrection, the reality that he is in Shemaim, he's on the throne of the living God, making intercession for us because he loves us. If you can recognize that first, that's where you tap into the love. The Holy Spirit comes in and begins to fill your heart when you recognize that. And then you have the ability to actually go out and love others. I'm going to tell you something that I discovered long ago, and it was a radical, it was one of those radical moments, and, and I know many of you have had these moments and you cherish them because you excel in the faith when all of a sudden this, this light bulb goes off. But I recognize in, in this passage and others like it, the Holy Spirit woke me up and saying, when I'm struggling with forgiving someone and loving someone, and I'm not doing it. I have to identify the problem is, is I am not recognizing the love Yeshua has shown me. I am not recognizing him. I've taken my eyes off of him and I haven't accessed the very source of love. And it will cost you. You will not be able to forgive the person. You can do lip service and say, oh yeah, I forgot that person. But you know, you know in your heart, you haven't. You still hold bitterness. You're still resenting that person. Uh, brother, I've been there. I've been there where I've recognized, man, I wrestle and wrestle and I haven't been able to do it. You know why I wasn't being able to forgive this person? Because I'm not plugged into Yeshua's love. I'm not getting that love. I'm not recognizing it and standing in awe of who he is and what he's done for me. When I do that, man, there is such perfect clarity. I can and I have. I've gone back and I've been like, it was so easy to forgive this person and to start praying for them, to pray blessings upon their life. God, have mercy on these people. To be able to do that with ease. Why? Because I finally recognized Yeshua. I finally focused on him. And I got some perspective into life in regard to his love. And that gave me the ability to go do what needed to be done. 
I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Messiah Yeshua forgave you. Isn't that interesting? Paul is bringing to the table, hey, you need to forgive someone else. Why? Don't you dare forget what Yeshua did for you. You deserve to die in the most excruciating and horrific way imaginable for sinning against him, for betraying him, for mocking him, for blaspheming him. See, when you can remember that, that's when it's awesome. And, and you know, I, I, there's so many other passages I, I think of uh, in John 13, right? 1334, behold, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And what's Yeshua say? As I have loved you, you get back to me. You analyze me. You, you remember what I have done for you. The very act that I've shown you. In John 13, it was Yeshua, the King of glory, serving man, which is ridiculous. Even his apostles were, uh, Peter was offended. This should never, ever be. You're the King of Israel. This is not going to happen. But Yeshua said, you have to. You have to permit this. He had to teach them. He, he led them by example the ultimate king of glory. And then the greatest thing that we know that he did, well, we'll go to John 15. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And again, I tell you, when we remember this, everything goes so much easier. You will, I'm telling you, and I, I'm just speaking from experience, you will find forgiveness and loving people you struggle to love with ease that's god's love that's when you know god's love is in your heart and if you know that isn't it you got a relationship problem and you got to deal with it and you got to get back front and center i want to close today with this thought in matthew chapter 5 and hands down the, the most difficult thing to do but I say to you, love your enemies. What did this Samaritan do? As Jews and Samaritan hate one another, the Samaritan did nothing but love. He loved his enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is the highest of all callings. When we can actually do this, and I wish I could tell you, I've lived a life that was successful doing this. To my own shame, I have not. I'd spent much, too much time hanging on to bitterness and resentment and all these things. And the only thing it does is it destroys you from the inside and out and gives the devil more ground to tear you up. And the worst thing is you're left powerless. I'm going to tell you, I don't want to live in this world without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to live in this world without Yeshua living in me. It's not okay. It's not safe. I don't have a chance. I'm going to get ripped apart by the wolves. And so this is, this is critical that we get that love in our hearts so that we can go and accomplish what most people can't do. I, I, I'll go far as say nobody can do apart from Yeshua. Apart from him, we can't do anything. And so the highest of all callings.
Now, I actually just, there's a little more here I want to show you, but I, I want to first take you to the Torah. Because Yeshua is talking about loving your enemies. The Torah talks about loving your enemies, and it does it in, in, in the most beautiful way. I, I love how the Torah works. And so going to Deuteronomy 22, I just want to show you this quick. You shall not see your ach, your brother's ox, or his sheep going astray, and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So if you know, if you're in a situation where you have, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And this is a good thing to do for me. You are, we are, our brother's keeper. We are. We need to look out for our brother in every way. And we, that's community. That's brotherhood. That's sisterhood. That's, that's the body of Yeshua. And so this is telling you, be your brother's keeper. Look out for your brother. But it's interesting. The exact same commandment is found in the book of Exodus in chapter 23 with a slight variation. If you meet your enemy's ox, and that in the Hebrew is absolute. This is a great translation. It's a diabolical enemy. It's Oyev. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Isn't that fascinating? You're supposed, one, one area, you can read, well, it's my brother, then I'm supposed to take care of another area. No, you take care of your enemy. See, because that's what the Torah promotes. It's a book of love. It promotes love. Loving, even loving your enemies. And so Yeshua's teaching of loving your enemies comes right out of the Torah. But then he goes on and says this, yes, we are to love our enemies. There's a reason that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why, do, why should I love my enemies? Because if I don't, I'm not going to make it. So this is where you really divide the boys from the men. And this is where you divide the sheep and the goats. Is those that have the ability to show and display this kind of love. And the other side, you have the intellectuals. That they, it's easier for them to talk about scripture. But they're not really interested in doing it. And doing scripture is love. And so we don't want to be the goats. We don't want to be on that side. We want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And, and I didn't even put this up, but Yeshua rounds out the statement. He answered by, and you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The calling is perfection. And love is perfect. That's why the Torah is perfect. If it's a book of love, of course it's perfect because love is perfect. Amen. We're going to close here for today. Bless you guys and Shabbat Shalom.